to the 20th episode of the Alternative London podcast with me, Gary Means. In this episode, I'm joined by the one, the only, the real Hackney Dave. In his early 50s, Dave left a successful career in advertising, ended his unhappy marriage, took a screen printing course, and the rest, as they say, is history. Dave is a natural storyteller, and I love listening to him talk about his life. It's a story of growth and rebirth, and it's both inspiring and fascinating in equal measures. I speak to him as he prepares for his solo show at Basement Space and I find a guy who's always working to make his art better and who creates it for the people. I love this one and I hope you do too. This is the Alternative London podcast with The Real Hackney Dave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's I'm not days. even from. I'm not even from Hackney. <laughs> so you're not the real Hackney Dave. Well, I'm technically bogus, bogus Hackney Dave. But it's it was only because um, when I was I was living I've lived in Hackney for years. But it's when the riots were happening in 2012, and I was on Twitter as Hackney Dave because I just needed a handle, mm-hmm. and I was commenting about all the rioting that was going on on my street. And then um, when I moved over to Instagram, because Twitter got a bit toxic, I went over to Instagram and they were like, Hackney David gone. So I just went, oh. And everyone always just put real Donald yeah, Trump yeah. or real <laughs> Joe. And I just went, well, fine. And it's, it's just been this thing. Have you got a little blue star now? No. I need to get one. I've been then, trying. Because then you'll be real. <clears throat> I've been trying, real. but they won't, they won't. I keep getting refused. I don't know if they don't like my content. Oh. Yeah, I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what the caper is, because I've seen loads of other people who get their asses out and they get approved straight away. They've got the blue star, and all I'm doing is just printing and talking shit, and I don't get anything, so I don't know. And also, I got caught by some Turkish bloke who sent me a text once saying, oh, you've been approved, or you just click here, and it was like six in the morning, and I clicked on it, and then he hacked my site, and it took me a while to get it back, but. But you got there. It was the most amazing get back because I was in a. I was having conversations with him because he was like uh, slagging me off, going, you, "You know, you English pig. We're going to send you back into the ocean like we did your grandparents." I'm like, "What are you fucking talking about, mate?" And he goes, oh, "I'm Turkish," and I was like, "Oh, great." And he was, you know, he's calling me an English pig, saying we're going to throw you back into the ocean like we did in in the First World War. And I was like, "Okay, whatever. <laughs> Can I just get my site back?" And he was like, "No, you have to pay me two hundred quid." She said, give me your bank details and, and, and I'll give it back to you. And I said, but you're a thief. And he goes, yeah, but I'm an honest thief. So we had this backwards and forwards. And in the end, I just started slagging him off. And then I had just happened to be in a cab in, a, in an Uber going to, my, to get my, pick my motorbike up from the garage. And the bloke said, oh, what are you doing? And Because I, I was laughing and cursing. And he said, oh, I said, I've got this bloke in Istanbul who's next to my Instagram. And uh, he said, oh, give us your phone. You've got his number. And I said, yeah. And it was on WhatsApp. So he just called him up in Turkish, left a message on his phone. And it literally, the sky went dark when he did it. And then it was all like, what the fuck? And then I got the phone back. And within a, a minute and a half of him putting the phone down, I got all the details back. And this guy, and I said, what did you say? And he says, oh, oh, it's fine. Did it all in Turkish. So I had it as a, as a phone message. And I translated it. And it was, ba- it was like something I'd taken. It was like, wow. you know, I know where you, uh, we, I've got, this, this guy that you've nicked the site of is my cousin. He's Turkish. Um, we're all together. I've got your phone number, I've got all my friends in Turkey, we'll find you, we'll kill you. It was something like that. 
this fucking bloke's ass just went and he went have it all back so I've got it back Bloody but within hell. minutes it was the weirdest weirdest coincidence of all time amazing never seen anything like it it's like someone out of a film isn't it like someone out of a gangster film it was really weird and I think sometimes it just like just let shit like that happen yeah. it's just I mean I just found it hysterical yeah. that it was happening in front of me it's just mad but this guy yeah he was like proper it was bizarre yeah weird anyway how's things very good very good very You're busy working, working hard aren't you yeah, I mean, I, I do. I like to work. It's like um, I don't know. Maybe it's my past life. In, in when I worked in advertising, it was so you, you know you were just always on it the whole time. And suddenly, when I find myself working for myself rather than other people, you can just you become your own your own timekeeper, your own boss, your own disciplinarian, and you just sort of go. And I treat it. You know, my job as an artist, I treat like a proper job. So I get in the studio at half eight and I leave at half eight, and I just make shit all the time, and then get knackered and go to bed and then repeat and do it again and so it's I love working but also it's, I think it's because I came to it late yeah. I'm 58 now I think when I started when I turned full time I was 55 and I think if I'd been in my if I was in my 20s or 30s it would have been very different maybe but yeah. because I'm running out of time I just look at it I've got a load of, load of things to catch up on learn how to make stuff learn how to do stuff but also explore all the things I want to try and do and I think when you work in advertising you spend a lot of time coming up with ideas and you make 1% of them and it's a very humiliating very destructive process where everybody has a right to destroy the idea that's put on the table and it becomes really sad at the end of the day and, and also you know that when you're striving to try and do something interesting to then have to present it to 50 people over a process, you know that the only idea that's going to survive 50 people all sticking their oars in is going to be the most vanilla and the most straightforward idea they can approve. So you go through this process of trying to do interesting things and then at the end of the day, you end up making the most boring thing and then you have to spend a year making it or eight months making it and it just it becomes this really weird process. Whereas when you're working on your Todd, you know, you're your own client, I can say, right, I'm going to come up with this idea and you get to say, yeah, well, let's do it. Yeah. And then when you, when you say yes a lot, it leads to loads of other stuff. And that's the thing I find really interesting. And it's like trying to manage that now is like coming up with all the ideas in the space that you've got mentally and physically to sort of constantly be angling and making shit. But it's, it's I've got no complaints. It's the best life I've ever, ever had. Yeah, amazing. that's brilliant. I'm just l loving every minute of it. It's great. I think that kind of makes a lot of sense now when you say that with with your work because um, the work that you're doing it's not vanilla. The things that you're a lot of your work is kind of text based. Yeah. So you use a lot of phrases, a lot of slogans. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those things, they're funny to start with. Well, that's a big part of it. I mean, it's like you know, obviously, my background in advertising is you know words and pictures. That's how, you know, when you boil advertising down, and I, I've got a book in my studio that my, grand, my Italian granny gave me on propaganda. It's all in Italian. It was like one of those part works albums, you know, where you'd get the Second World War, and it was 12 books, and one of them is about propaganda. And I used to love it. I got it when I was about five or six, and I just used to go through it and see all of these, you know, amazing, powerful pictures with three words. You know, stop doing this, start doing that, don't do that, do that, join, you know, fight. And there's something really powerful about minimal amounts of words. And in a way, that's what it was like when I worked in advertising. You're trying to condense the story of whatever you're trying to get people to buy or to do into very few words. But then also wrap it in personality. And I think with propaganda, there's always an angle to it. It's like we're about to get invaded or we're about to go to war. 
it's quite powerful emotive stuff yeah. whereas in advertising when you're selling dog food or tights it's not that emotive and the thing that I always loved was trying to find something that would engage people and cut through and in a way with art that's the one thing I never really understood with art is why people don't make it funny but maybe I'm, I might be totally wrong but I really enjoy the humour because it, it's sort of something that I think engages people in a way you know a lot of art can be quite chin rubby and dry and I think to have a personality is really important and, and but also to do stuff that is fun and I, and I love words and I love slang and I love that thing of the language that you get in different areas and London especially and um, it's also you know language is changing it transitions all the time and I look at the slang that my kids who are 16 17 would use compared to the one the stuff I was talking when I was 16 17 it's all gone but it's, it is one of those things that I suppose, you know, when, when you work in advertising with clients, you're constantly trying to work out what the universe is. We used to call it the universe. It's a wanky phrase, but it's like, what are their fonts? What are their colours? What's their language? What's their personality? So when you create a new piece of work for them, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's right or that's wrong. And I just do exactly the same for me. So my biggest fear would ever be doing something like live, love, laugh. If I did that then I'll <laughs> happily oh, set myself on fire somewhere. So then I sort of go, right, if I'm going to do something about love, like everybody has a right to do or whatever, do it with your own flavour through it and, and make it more unique and more ownable. And that's the thing I love. And I suppose your work, it, it does really, um, it really brings out your personality. And like you say, I suppose that was something massively important to you because when you're working in an environment <laughs> where your personality is constantly just being crushed... Yeah, well, you're not really allowed to have a personality. I mean, in an ad agency, we had a, we had, you know, I had a pretty good ad agency called Karmarama that was uh, had a strong personality. Really fought against the, you know, it was a co-op. Well, I did, t- I did three in the end, but one of them in the '90s was a cooperative called St Luke's, and it was one of the first agencies that wasn't named after the five white guys that owned it. Um, it was a co-op. Everybody was an equal shareholder. So there was a sort of we're trying to you know, to try and shake up the ad world is not very difficult. Just by not calling it Smith, Dave, and you know Jones, will be would be a huge, you know, change. And so I, I love doing that thing of setting up a business that challenged in a way and sort of offered clients a different alternative and staff a different alternative. And so in a way, the same sort of thing with the art is that you sort of look right. What's everybody else doing? What do I like doing? Where's my little niche within what everyone else is doing? And it's just finding that and then mining it. But that comes from 35 years of practice in advertising. So I've, I've got a bit of a foot up in a way because I've got an experience in that world. It comes completely naturally to me. Yeah. For so like you've kind of built your advice. foundations. Yeah. You? And then you can be really disciplined about what you do and making sure that you know the natural artistic reaction is always to push against what you've done in the past mm-hmm. and see what you're going to be doing over the next two, three, five, ten years, whatever it is, and how do you make sure that there's a red thread that goes through all of that so that you don't jump too far, that people go, what the fuck is he doing? You know. Are you happy with your work at the minute? I am. I'm, I have a weird thing where I don't ever look at anything I've ever done with any... Um, I don't know. I, remember when you used to play with Lego as a kid? I'd build all these amazing things, and the minute the last brick went on, and I'd visualised it, I'd break it all up. And I think it's just, I've got, I've got that in my system, which is I don't give a fuck about anything that I've done in the past. I look at, I drive past things that I've done, see some of the street art that I've done, and it just doesn't mean anything. It's really weird. So it's all about the, the what's, process. What's coming next is the main thing. And, and the fear of, will it be any good? And is it going to be good enough? And is it going to be good enough for me? And it, will it resonate in any way? And that's the thing that challenges me. Once it's gone, it's like, it's like having a crap. You know, yeah. you've eaten it and you've pooped it out. 
and then it's you know, you're on to the next thing. As someone who puts their work on the street, that would be, I suppose, for you, the ideal scenario, really. Well, I, I kind of love that. I mean, it's, oddly enough, I'm having a kind of not not a ding dong, but there's a bloke. We did some paste up with a friend of mine the other day for her art show that she's got coming up in Spitalfields, and some bloke got the ass because he was like, "Oh, you pasted over my stuff," and I'm like, "Well." If you drive around with your fucking car windows open, at some stage someone's going to put their hand in. You know, it's like that's what happens. It's street art. Yeah. And I've got lots of pieces that I've put out that have either been peeled off or pasted over. I mean, it's like that's if it's there for an hour, good. If it's there for a year, fucking incredible. Yeah. So I've got no worries. I think that that texture and that that kind of patina is like what makes it. That's what I love about it. It's it's got a life and it. Interestingly, you know, when, when COVID was on, I remember we were, me and a couple of other guys were pacing up all the time because no one was out. Yeah. And you started to notice that all the walls started looking really tatty. Whereas when it's fresh and it's colourful and it's bright, there's a, it's got, I love that. I mean, that's the, whole, that's the whole thing. I've never really understood like, oh yeah, don't paste up over my stuff. It's like, well, who the fuck are you? Yeah. You know, what are you like? You own the building or something or you're royalty. You know, it's like, fuck off, mate. It goes. And if you worry about it and... Put it in a frame, stick it up in your living room. Yeah, put it in your living room. Look at it yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> no, I've got no worries about it at all. I love that kind of... Maybe it's as you get a bit older, you just become a little less precious about stuff. But, you know, if you can if you can do something that resonates with people for a minute... Oh, oddly enough, I used to work at Channel 4 for a couple of years and I remember talking to the bloke who was the commissioner, the head of programming, and his thing was like, the channel is like, we're, we're a little boat in a very fast-moving river of culture. And every now and then we'll be throwing things out in the air like pebbles and occasionally they'll land in the water and create ripples that might last a minute over the greater scheme of things. More often than not, they'll just sink straight to the bottom. And he had a really good thing, which was when you do something shit, get it off air immediately. When you do something great, get it off air immediately because it's just that, it's chip paper. Just get, get rid of it. Don't ever sit there and get overcome with your own intelligence and your own importance and your own fame if you create anything that people talk about for more than a minute it's just get rid move on move on move on and it's a very liberating feeling just to sort of cut everything away and just keep making it's a beautiful analogy isn't it well it was really resonated with me because i remember thinking fuck you're right you know channel four was a pretty cool station at the time and it was like the, the years that i was there they launched Queer when, as Folk. When, when was this? 99, okay. two, in 2000. 98, 99, 2000, I was there. And it was, um, you know, they launched Big Brother, uh, Sex in the City, Queer as Folk, Sopranos. They, they had some pretty killer programs, but Big Brother and Sex in the City were pretty challenging. And I just think being part of that vibe, being in the building when they were thinking that this is good stuff, and it was, and they were really nervous about it. But it was kind of interesting how, how it really resonated because I, I remember sitting there one night when they were going, I think we're going to get 600,000 views. It's going to be really good. And they got like 7 million for Big Brother. And I think they suddenly realised, hold on a minute, we can do something that's really niche and really edgy because the original versions of the, of the show were pretty edgy, but still get a big audience. And I think it suddenly became that moment when niche was broad as well. So, you know, you could be doing anything niches you fancied and they were and you suddenly felt connected that there were loads of other people who felt the same way and were interested in the same thing i think it not only changed the course of tv programming that we're still seeing today with stuff like love island and everything else that we see but it probably shaped our modern culture as far as ordinary people having a platform yeah, and becoming sort of celebrities yeah, yeah, totally. so and now, social now, media yeah. and it suddenly you became it probably was the star yeah. of that wasn't it yeah i think it, it sort of felt like i remember when i was a kid you know, seeing punk happen as a 14, 13 year old and thinking, fucking hell, these people are mad. Look at them. They don't look like musicians. They just look like normal people 
dressed in the weirdest way possible. I didn't understand any of it, but I think there was something that was really interesting about, I remember going into our price at the time and before, you know, you would have classical disco, soul, but then after punk, you know, over the, the following years, you just had this explosion of different versions of what music was to different people. And I think you sort of see how Brit art and, and, and how punk at the same thing combining fashion, art, music as this sort of lock-on cultural event that just became really powerful. I think it's the same, you know, it just becomes this thing that when you get it right, it it makes lots of noise. And then people join in and then suddenly, you know, with, with the event of social media and how, hold on, I, I'm a newspaper, I'm a TV channel, I can do whatever the fuck I want and I've got an audience sometimes that will, might be interested in what I've got to say. And, and then I think that's a really powerful thing. Yeah, it can be. Well, and it, and it's it sort of that's how art fits into it, and it's like you know whether my choice is to make people laugh a lot of street art is to make people angry or is to challenge or to you know create noise and and make waves, and I think that there's you know everyone has that. It's it's, it's really interesting. So you're currently working on a well, you're working on loads of things, but you've got a show coming up for the brilliant guys at Basement Space. Yeah, um, you've got a studio move. You're moving into a new place in Hackney Wick. Yeah, and you've got an art fair coming up as well and I've got another show coming up yeah so this the basement show is happening on the third and that's all that's all done uh, and then I've got this show when I move into the new space and I've got a show in there that I'm doing with the big issue for um, this this just be nice so I get to edit the magazine for one issue or be part of it. there's a insert that's going to go in so I've commissioned like I don't know about 60 70 people to do one-off pieces you get a piece of wood you get laser cut letters that say just be nice and you can do whatever the fuck you want, which has been amazing because it's been really nice to see how people have turned that template into their own thing. Yeah. And you know, changed the words and upside down them and reflected them. It's great. It's been really nice. good fun. And then I think the, I saw your I think I saw the Riker version of that. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Ryan Callahan, is it? Yeah. Yeah. He's got two. He's got gold and, and white. They look fucking amazing. Yeah. He's great, isn't he? Yeah. It's great. Nice. So it's really good to sort of be. I mean, and the generosity. I mean, it's like it helps when the when the theme for the show is just be nice. You'd sort of think hopefully everybody would say yeah, I'd love to do that, and which they have. And I've got some incredible pieces, and it's it's going to be interesting when we do the show at the new space. I think it'll be great because the space is big, but having all of that work is is it's. I hope I'm hoping it's going to be really good. I think it will be. It sounds like a really interesting project. The fact that it's something so simple but so effective well yeah I mean it's again it's propaganda it's, you know, it's like three, three fucking words and if there was ever three really po- powerful words ten letters that could transform the world you know yeah, and, I, and I find that fascinating and that, again that sort of taps back into the world I'm from which is you know advertising and I think you can just be sometimes with, with art you can just be really basic really simple you don't have to be over complicated advertising we always used to overthink everything and try and make it so much more complicated than it needs to be and it's fucking propaganda it's like I think it can be the same with art as well totally yeah it should be I mean I think art art plays a massive role in culture yeah and sometimes I think artists can be very insular and do what they want to do and then operate on their own little you know their own little orbit but I think when you see the way that art has been used to challenge the previous movement whether it was the the renaissance or pop art and I love the way that culture works with artists and artists work with culture in order to create that change and I remember the turning point for me was when we did an anti-war march poster for the march in 2003 with Tony Blair with a teacup on his head saying make tea not war and we printed I don't know a hundred of them and um 
gave handed them out on the march and then the bloke who stayed i had to go home because i had a little two-year-old at the time but when i he, he messaged me in the morning he said just go down the news agents and i went down there to get the papers and it was on the front cover of the times and the sun and, all that, and i was like what the fuck has happened here and i think it was because it was such a stupid thing because most banners at the time were really dry and you know don't attack iraq and their blood on your hands and it was all very po-faced and angry and just by doing something that was stupid it suddenly made it feel a little bit more casual and a bit looser and i remember at the time we were quite concerned about it wouldn't be too it's not too humorous because obviously a lot of people soldiers and innocents are going to die but it was um a good way of creating a bit of noise and a bit of awareness around it and i think that was the turning point for me when i suddenly went hold on you can do something that's got personality and and it engages people Congrats on that. That's a well, it that's was a, that's a yeah, big, mate, um, it was a it was a total fluke. Total I don't fluke. think it is. You know, I think you. I think these things. Well, maybe in well, that I think you make your, you make your luck. Was, but yeah, I think we spoke about. Sorry to anyone that listens to this podcast regularly, but we're going to bang on about luck again. But just from, we talk about this a lot with artists because a lot of people will say that if you're grinding out in your case, eight thirty a.m. to eight thirty p.m at some point you're going to stumble upon something that's going to be a fluke. Or that's well, going to, that's yeah, I mean, it's the old Jack Nicholas, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. I mean, uh, yeah. and, and with that, I, I've got this theory that you uh, just say yes to everything. So when galleries say, can you, I remember I had a conversation with, uh, I left my wife about three years ago and I was living in the Travelodge in Hackney Central for a month, which was one of the low points of my life. And I remember a gallery called up, Jealous called up and said, oh, do you want to, we've got a gap in, in, this was in January, we've got a gap, do you want to do a show in February? And I'm like, yeah. And I was, I was on a single bed eating biscuits for a month, you know, it was fucking horrific. But it was, I knew that if I didn't say yes, he was going to give it to somebody else. And that meant they would progress up their career ladder one step or two steps. And so I ended up doing a show there. And I think it's just that, it doesn't matter if it hurts, it, fucking, it's going to hurt just do it stop crying get on with it and i love that kind of approach of just fucking do it put yourself in a position where something might happen and if it does happen great if it doesn't it doesn't matter you haven't lost anything but just constantly be on it and it's yeah. your job it takes a lot of um not necessarily confidence but i think you have to be quite quite brave to to be like that because you have to put yourself out there and accept that you might fail and be okay yeah. with that. Yeah, and, and, but, and again, that's something that I think in advertising, when you've had 35 years of practice of it, holding it? up pieces of work and everybody from the most stupid account manager in your own agency has got an opinion on it, all the way up to the most powerful client you could ever meet, 50 people have an opinion on it. And if you can't handle that, you're in the wrong game. I mean, it's just it's just one series of disappointments after another. When you come up with an idea, it's like giving birth. Come up with this great idea, and you just watch it get lacerated, and um, and then you spend all year making something that's dog shit, and having to sort of smile your way through it. So I, you know, and then once you've been married and divorced and lost everything, and I've walked out of lots of businesses, you become a little bit hardened. Yeah, and I don't have. I've got. Yeah, I don't. I'm so smothered in scar tissue. Yeah. I don't give a fuck anymore. And. And so it's, again, not worrying about it too much is a very liberating, but it's also that, that thing, like I said earlier, I don't think about anything I've ever done with any great, I don't look back at anything and sort of think, fuck me, aren't I clever? I literally just go, that was, I did that a year ago. It's, it, it's history. And then you, so you just, you, you immediately default to, it's gone, don't worry about it. Which is probably a little bit, maybe cold, I don't know, but it suits me, it helps me because 
I've seen lots of people in the ad world who did one good thing and lived off that for 10 years. And I also see lots of artists who do one thing and then smash that pony for, for, you know, for the next 10 years and they don't have a way of moving on. You know? And I think part of being an artist is to challenge yourself as well as the world you're in and sort of exist in some way. But some people are quite happy just, I'll just get on and do my little drawings of birds and that's, quite, that's what I'm good at. You know? Whereas I'm, all, I'm always sitting thinking, what's the next thing? What is the next thing that's going to make me move one? I don't even know this fucking imaginary ladder that I'm climbing up. I don't know how long it is. I don't know how many steps there are, where it is, where it's going. But I just assume that every time I do a show, I move two levels up. Every time I do a new campaign, a new campaign or a new body of work or something, I move one step up. And when I fuck up, I fall down. And it's, it's life. But it's... Um, yeah, that's just it's just the way I've been groomed, I guess, and I'm just used to it. I don't don't really worry about it anymore. It sounds like you're very um, you're very comfortable in your own very thick skin. It's taken all of that, those knockbacks and those difficult situations to, I suppose, show you who you are, teach you who you are, and and, and yeah, come that's out. It's a good point. I mean, it's a really good point because I think I lived. I was living a bit of a lie for a long time. I don't think I'm very good at advertising. You know, I set up lots of ad agencies. Do you reckon that's why you got knocked back every day? Well, maybe, <laughs> probably, probably. But I think it was, yeah, it was also kind of an element of naivety and idealism that I've got. I just don't think I was really cut out for it. You know, I'm not. My parents aren't English. My mum's Danish. My dad's Italian. I don't have the nuances of the English language of puns. I just don't. I'm just not wired like that. So, and advertising at the time was very punny and very English language and very cutesy about the way that it spoke. Whereas I'm just like picture three words, picture three words. Just make it really keep it fucking simple. And um, I just remember sort of always feeling like I was living a bit of a lie. I mean, I'd get in in the morning dreading going through what I had to go through. You know, just keep going, Make, especially towards the end of my career, towards the end of the time I worked in advertising. I was in a, a horrendous marriage. You know, I'd go home at night after a day of being destroyed by various people to then be destroyed by this you know, woman I was married to. And it was a bad relationship. And then I'd get up in the morning and I'd go and repeat. And it was like Groundhog Day in hell. You just become a bit fake. And I sort of found that I was just not me. You just have to find a way to kind of override it and get on with your life, don't you? Well, and then, I mean, and, and by especially doing when that, you lose your, yourself. You lose your identity and you lose... I mean, I, you know, oddly enough, I used to, when people said, what do I do? I used to say, I'm an ad fuck. I couldn't even say that... I couldn't even be proud of what I did, even though I had some pretty good agencies, you know, that were nice, good places, good, decent places to work that were fair to clients and we didn't enter awards, we didn't take money, we did everything as well as we could. You know, an agency built on the concept of karma is very naive and very idealistic in the world of advertising. And for me, values, and the bloke I set it up with, a guy called Naresh Ramchandani, values were the most important thing in how we like to operate. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you worked in an agency or you could go and work at an agency where they shared your values as well? And clients would come to you because you had good values, rather than being fucked over and ripped off by a load of middle-class twats. And so it was kind of... It was good, but towards the end, I just, I just, I'd lost all my identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was doing, and who I was doing it for. And then I just had this sort of, I don't know whether it's an epiphany. I or, a mid, or a midlife crisis. Well, I, and people call it a midlife crisis. I think it was more a midlife realization. No, no, but, no, but it's a good, it's a very good point because a lot of people say it, and it's a really negative thing. Whereas I think what I experienced was a midlife realization of like, man, I'm running out of fucking time. I was like, fifty. And I'm like, shit, and when you, even when you own your own ad agency, when you're the founder, 
you're still dead man walking in an ad agency. Every, you know every fucker, every time you walk into a meeting, they're looking at you like, you're next, mate. We're going to get rid of you and we'll take you. And I'm like, oh, fuck off, mate. I'm the owner. I set this place up. I employed you and now you're trying to fuck me. And it was real dog eat dog. And I just remember thinking, fuck, is this it? Is this, I live in London. I've got all these incredible choices. I can choose what I do, where I live, what I eat, what I drive, what I wear, who I hang around with, what I do in my spare time. Incredible choices that billions of people around the world don't have. And I'm still miserable. And that's when I had this sort of moment where I thought, fucking hell, life is really short. We're like ice cubes on a very hot pavement. And if you're lucky, you'll leave a little stain that will last a minute. Yeah. And you know, in the world of advertising where they all think they're gods creating Fabergé eggs that everybody talks about, no one gives a fuck about anything. And so the, 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 sort of the moment I had was this thing where I just thought, right, I'm just going to stop doing things that make me miserable. So I'll leave you. And I'm going to leave you. And I walked out of the agency and was going to set up another little business, but I left my wife. And it all happened in a sort of you know, like three, five-year period. And it was the most catastrophic thing that's ever happened to my li- in my life. Horrific. And I died. When I was 14, I died. I had an accident when I died. And uh, it was worse really? than that. What happened? I don't know. I just got found. My, my sister found me hanging on the stairs. So I don't know whether I tried to top myself or whether it was a game or a trick or... I don't know, auto-erotic asphyxiate, I don't know. <laughs> but maybe a bit young for that. But um, yeah, I don't know. But it was worse than that. And it was like a living, it was like a living hell of, you just feel embarrassed. I just felt massively embarrassed about what I'd become, who I was. And I think suddenly stripping it all back and just going, right, what do you, what do you want to do? I want to be creative. Who do you want to do it with? Well, I don't want to do it with those people. So you sort of narrow down what you've got to do. And then... I did a screen printing course. I left the agency, walked out. Had, they put me on gardening leave for a year, where it means you're not allowed to work. And I went and did a screen printing course like the two days after I'd left. And I just went, fuck, you know, I've just worked it out. I'm studio, I'm not boardroom, I'm studio. Mm. I like wearing shit clothes. You could put me in a, in a white suit in a white room for 10 minutes and I'd come out covered in shit. It's just me, yeah. pig pen. And, um, and so when I did that course, I just thought, right, this is what I want to do. And I had it, I thought, I've got a year to try and become an artist or just try and start the process. And it took about five, four or five years before I, and it was nonstop before I went to work, after work, on weekends, just making stuff all the time, learning how to get better and trying to understand what I was good at and what I wasn't good at and find that universe and then build it. And then here I am. Here we are. That's such a um, that's such an inspirational and um, really quite touching story as well because there's so many people that just will never have that realization and yeah. they will never have that epiphany or if they do they'll suppress it because they've got the fear of um, leaving everything that's sort of safe and secure yeah. and what they know. And so it's a very interesting um, moment in anybody's life because I guarantee everybody everybody will be sitting there thinking is this it there must be something else and uh, and a lot of people sort of use that word brave of me and i don't think it was brave actually i think it was more it was a more more of a self-preservation thing i felt like i was standing in a burning building and um you got two options you burn or you jump and i had no idea where i was going to jump to but i thought i'm not stupid i'm pretty good at some stuff and so it's like land and start again and it you know when you get divorced and you walk out of an agency or you walk out of your job 
is start again. I mean, it's like snakes and ladders taken to an extreme. And but you know what? I would do it even if I had to play all that same game, respawn and do it all over again. I would do it exactly the same way because all of the things, as horrific as some of the things were that I went through, fuck it. It's like it's life. You know, it's if it's easy, it's pretty dull. And I think all of that shit that you deal with on a minute by minute, on a daily or a yearly basis, that's just what makes you. And will hopefully, if you if you follow the cues and you bump through it, you will end up somewhere much more interesting. And like now, I look at what I'm doing, and it's like the best life. Like I said earlier, it's the best life I've ever had, doing things I love doing with people I really like hanging around with. I mean, it, and I, and I, for the first time in my life, I actually feel like I like myself. I'm really proud to be an artist. I'm really proud to do the things I do and work with the people I work with. And it's a very, it's a, it's a revelation because suddenly you become a nicer person, I think. Um, you meet other really nice people. And it's very weird. It's very um, inspiring as well because yeah. you're much more open to stuff rather than closed down. It's a very, it's a, you know, when you get into those negative spaces and that, that sort of toxic environment, it's, you, you shut down and you become something different. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is how do you find out who the fuck you are so you can express yourself for that fleeting moment that you're going to be around? How can you just shine for a little bit, you know? Well, you should be really proud of yourself, for sure. And um, I bet your kids are pretty proud as well, aren't they? No, they don't give a fuck. Oh, right. Honestly. Yeah, 16 and 17. 16, 17. All yeah, I am get is... It one day. One yeah. day they'll get it. The only time my daughter once had no idea what I do... She comes around, she prints for me in my studio, so I'll do stuff and I'll employ her and I'll pay her and she still doesn't give a fuck. And then one day she was looking at that, that mad read-through that... Um, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston did for Ridgemont High and they had a guy called Henry Golding I don't even know who he is but he had one of my prints in the background of his of his Zoom conversation and my daughter went fuck that's yours and, I, and she had to show it to me I don't even know who it was but um, that's the first time she's ever actually gone shit you do art yeah. that some lots of people quite like yeah but they don't give a fuck but it's quite nice because it just means that I can just kind of go, that. just get on That's with it. Brilliant. You know? That is yeah. so good. Yeah, they don't. Sad. And one day, but you're right. Hopefully, one day. Hopefully, they one day. They Honestly, will. hopefully before you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully <laughs> before I die, I kill myself. But it's yeah. I don't know. It's it's very odd. Oh mate, I think if you were going to kill yourself, you would have done it by now. Oh, I tried. I think I tried. Did you? And, I, and you know, when I was 14, I think I, I don't know whether I did. Mm. I have no idea what happened. But imagine if I did. They say that, um, well, I heard someone say recently that um, anyone that kills themselves before the age of 40 might as well kill a stranger. And uh, I think what you're saying now, and from similar things that I can resonate with what you're saying as well, I think that definitely rings true. I think that you really do hit a stage or some people I for sure you hit a stage in your sort of later life I'm a bit younger than you but you hit this phase of this stage where you do have an epiphany you do have a wake up yeah and if you don't do something with it then it's, well, it's and it's really difficult because you know if you live in London or if you're married and you've got kids and you've you become seduced by the lifestyle whatever it is you make decisions in your 20s that will impact on your 30s 40s 50s and 60s and, and that's why, you know, I went to a funeral the other week for a bloke who was in his 70s that worked in advertising. And in the, 60, in the 70s and 80s, when I knew him in advertising, you know, everyone was 
famous in advertising. You know, you're all out, you had a big social circle, you're out to lunch all the time, living the dream. And then suddenly when you hit 50 and you're out of work and suddenly your social circle evaporates, they all fucking, every, every one of them just goes into like, you know, hermit mode. And they just sit at home drinking whiskey all day and then they die. And you, you see all these people come out at funerals and it just becomes fucking hell, man. And I looked at them. I was like, mate, you look shit. And I bet they were looking at me thinking, God, Dave looks shit. But you know what? It's that, it's that awful thing where you just go, dude, you're in control. You've got your hand on the steering wheel. And the minute you let yourself go, you're fucked. Yeah. Just get that control. And oddly enough, there's a piece that I'm doing for, for the, um, the BSMT show. Um, and the show is all about, it's called High Crimes and Dirty Habits. And... And it opens next. Opens on the third. The third, third of, of November. November, whenever that is. Is that next week? Next Thursday, I think. Next it? Thursday, shit, that's yeah. come around quick. But the, um, and it's everything from you know the cancel culture that we live in. About you know, the thing I've always found really interesting about cancel culture is, who the fuck are the police that are telling me they're going to cancel me? All these people who, what they're so clean, and so, you know cleaner than clean and worthy that they have an opinion on what you can and can't do you know they all jump through red lights do coke cheat on their partners you know they're all as dirty as everybody else but one of the, so so the, the show it sort of explores everything from attempted murder to drug abuse to uh, procrastination and one of the pieces is that yeah well and, I, and I'm actually I'm building a glory hole at the minute I've got a right. guy I've bought a toilet and I've got a guy on eBay who's sending me over all the panels to make a toilet. And he was like, what kind of colours do you want? And I said, mate, it doesn't really matter. Just the shit of the better. Have you got any second-hand ones? He goes, no, no, I need to do new toilet panels. What are you doing with it? I said, I'm building a glory hole, but it's going to have holes on both sides. And he was like, okay, okay, a glory hole. But one of the pieces is um, this one that just says, just a, rem just a gentle reminder to stop fucking about and maybe start doing that thing that will probably make you a much happier person. Now, that started life as a bit of paste up um, yeah, I saw that on the rage stage with yeah. tricks and uh, I'd done a couple of pieces with him before and it was just nice he just said have you got anything new this is where it's going to go and I like when I do my street work is to sort of make it feel like it connects with you and I, I want that piece that when you're driving past on the bus or you walk past and you see it you go fucking hell how do they know how do they know that's the space I'm in now like I said earlier I know that everybody out there is thinking there has to be something more there has to be something more to my life or to what i'm doing that is going to make me feel happier london is a very very toxic place that will envelop you and confuse you and so sometimes having those little moments of realization i used to do this one called dreams come true where i just paste that up on walls with 3d wooden letters and i used to put them on the shop fronts that were empty and pretend that i was working for a company that was do, just doing shop fronts and so somebody come up and say what are you doing oh well, i don't know it's a new it's a new sign for this new business and they'd let me do it and then you put it on walls but i love the idea of i'd get messages from people who'd say i saw it and it made me think about something that i was doing and that piece has really triggered a lot of people and i love that thing of being responsible for something that might make somebody move one degree or either way of where they are to end up being a little bit closer to where they might want to be and that's what I mean about, I think there's a role that art plays, which is it should inspire you, should look nice, it should make you feel good. But when you see it, it should make you feel something. Yeah, and, for sure. And create an element of change, not, you know, a lot of graffiti is, is to create change on a bigger scale, but I like that change on a very personal level, which is like, fucking hell, man.
It's good that you um, that you kind of recognise the the responsibility that you can that you can have as an artist and the yeah. the, the way that you can um, yeah use it to change people's lives. Yeah, in, and it's everything from a laugh, massive way. lifting spirits in some way that might make you One laugh. One day, someone someone is going to be walking down the street, and they're going to really need to yeah. laugh. Yeah, and they might not have someone around to. Totally. make them do that totally. at that moment in time and I don't think people often get the importance of some of these things well and again I don't know if that's just something uh, being older and being less precious about stuff but the and, and probably the experience that I had with Channel 4 is, is like you know I wouldn't have worked wanted to work at the BBC or ITV or any of the other you know, Channel 4 meant something to me it felt like it was a an upstart and it felt like it was challenging and that's the the, the kind of the vibe that I've always carried or the values that I really in, enjoyed and 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 liked and felt and so I think that you know when when I look at the output of channel 4 it was a it was a broadcast channel and I look at my Instagram as a broadcast channel I like to take the piss out of myself I like to have a laugh I like to make myself look stupid but then I also like to talk about the work I'm doing and it it feels like it all works together I don't I don't tell people what I've had for dinner and where I'm going on holiday it's really just it's always observations and fun stuff Mm -hmm. and I love the role of making people laugh because I think it's a really important thing to do and especially nowadays it's so fucking shit out there and and in a way if you can try and influence somebody's day not about being in control but helping people get through it and and a lot of that was triggered actually when when the pandemic happened I remember 2020 I went pro full time as an artist thinking you know, 19, I was going, God, 2020 is going to be my year, matching numbers, it will never happen again in my lifetime. 2020, seeing clearly, all about seeing the way, you know, I was like making it all up, retrofitting bullshit. Started, it was all going really well, um, and then caught COVID in March at an art fair, selling face, ironically selling face masks with jealous that said no snogging, thinking we're hysterical, it won't come over here. And then I had it and I fucking, man, I thought I was going to die at one stage, it was so bad. And then uh, coming out and thinking, Jesus, the world's completely changed in the space of six weeks. I've come out after the illness of seven weeks, and it's like, you wouldn't even recognise the place. Completely empty, no one around, hoarding food, fighting over bog paper in supermarkets, if they're even open. How is art going to play a role in that? And so I remember thinking, I'm fucked. And I remember going into print club that was empty at the time, no one around, so I'd walk from my house on Shacklewell Lane, up to print club which is about 200 yards and I would just print stuff and I'd find paper on Amazon or wherever I could get anything paper and ink and I started doing these keep your chin up posters that you'd put in your window that would just communicate with somebody across the road and it was just like don't worry it's going to be all right and did them all for free you know I remember printing I think I must have printed about a thousand or I printed two did two batches keep your chin up again and keep your chin up when when the second lockdown happened but it was it was nice because I was doing them all on newsprint because that was the only paper I could buy off Amazon and then if you sent me a stamped address envelope I'd just post it back to you and it just became this weird way of connecting with people even though that we were all stuck indoors it was really odd but it was a a good moment for me that I think as influence the work a lot which is create a reaction make it important doesn't have to be amazing doesn't have to be really well printed doesn't have to look fucking good it just has to be important and if you can make it important then it stands for something 
Yeah. Like all the best graffiti or all the best music or all the best film, yeah. any any creative it's output connection, isn't it? is creating a connection, but it has to be important to you. Yeah. A couple of things I wanted to get onto. I can't believe that we've nearly yeah, done an I hour. Yak, mate. I, I know, but it feels like I've only just started. Um, I, could, no, I could sit and chat with you forever, Dave, but um, there was a couple of things. I don't want to take up your whole day, though, because I know that you've got so much other stuff going on. I'm all right. Moment. I'm just packing my studio, and it's like any, any excuse <laughs> to get out. I'll stay I wanted to talk to you, actually, because we're, we're talking a lot about art and advertisement and around Shoreditch, um, which you... So you've... So these are kind of two, two things, I suppose, but one is that... You lived in Spitalfields yeah. um, before I'd even moved to London, and that was at a time when anyone that's done one of our tours over the years will be aware of 11 and a half Fournier Street, and you actually used to own that building and live in it. Yeah. So the changes that you've seen around the East End and Hackney Wick, where you're about to move to, have been phenomenal. Mm. Um, on top of that, I think with the with the art scene around here as well. We've seen a big change in the last few years with a lot of the walls that were originally um, used for people to create uncommissioned artworks of their own are now being used for advertisement space, yeah. but created by artists. Mm. Um, so yeah, how, how do you sort of feel about all of those things? Um, I suppose it's quite a lot, isn't it, to, to talk about? It's well, I think I'm, question, I mean, we had a brief conversation about gentrification in its in its purest form. I mean, I'm part of the problem. You know, I'm a fat little middle class white boy from London who worked in advertising. When I when I was living, I was living in Clapham, working in advertising, and we did some filming in Brick Lane, and I was like, fuck, I used to come to, I used to go to the market all the time, and I just loved the fact that it was a bit of a shit house, and. Um, I just, then just remembering walking around there while they were doing some film. We were filming in, in just on the other side of Bishopsgate, and I just walked down to Brick Lane and got a curry and sat there and thought, "Fucking hell, it's, it's nice. It's quiet." You know, it was just on a Saturday. And there was nothing going on. Petticoat Lane was on, but it was kind of quiet. And I then I just went and found a place and moved down there. Um, the road when I lived on Fournier Street it was completely derelict. I was at eleven and a half. There was a bloke living next door to me at eleven. There was a cafe called the Market Cafe that Gilbert and George part owned or funded. And you would go in there at three o'clock in the morning and have roast lamb or roast beef with spuds. And it was a, a, two, a brother and sister called Clyde and Phyllis who owned it. And their mum and dad had owned it before when it was for the market traders. Gilbert and George, come. they, they would go in there every day and have breakfast. But you, if you went in there at three o'clock in the morning and they were around, they would serve you. So one of them come and go, hello, here's your, and your lamb chops and potatoes. It was the fucking maddest place. Yeah. They lived further down, but every other house was, well, more than that, every, like, I'd say Fournier Street, probably half of it was squatted or empty. And I think Tracy Emin was living in a house, was squatting in a house down there. The pub, the Golden Heart, Sandra was like, was running a pub that had six people in it on a Saturday night. We used to bring cook roast dinners on Sunday, play football in the market, cook a roast dinner and then go and eat it in the pub with her. And people, you know, there'd be like six people, you'd be sharing a roast dinner with them. I mean, it was mental. Yeah. But I loved that thing. And I loved it when it, it was raw like that. And then you could sort of feel it transitioning. It's like, you know, very close to the middle of London. It was a shit house, And it just got, it changed. 
and there were lots of artists down there. Jake and Dinos Chapman had a place on Fashion Street. Loads of studios were there. And it's always that thing of when it's shit and it's cheap and it's raw and no one paying attention, you can get away with it. Hackney Week was exactly the same. And then the minute they, the interesting thing, it was all those, the, the people who lived there, Jake and Dinos and Sandra and Tracy Emin, they would create that culture because they were there. Yeah. And then nice restaurants would turn up, nice bars, their mates would open up bars and then, you know, they'd all hang around at the Dragon Bar or whatever it was up in short. You know, all of those places became something. And then all the civilised masses come in and go, oh, we quite like it, it's quite cool here. And then all the estate but turn the noise down a little bit, would you? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> try not to write on the walls. Can yeah. we move on? We like it, but could you just like... Mine not were all like, so many prostitutes around here. I'm like, mate, <laughs> it's... That's from Roman times. The prostitutes were here. And it used to be a market with yeah. people travelling in there for days. I used to have the, the I used to have the old Jack the Ripper tours standing on my doorstep, a little alcove. And if it wasn't Jack the Ripper tours going, and here he had her lungs in his hands, or it was prostitutes standing on the doorstep in mine because it was it was away from the rain, and you know touting. It was just mad, but I love that kind of energy. But, you know, like I said, I'm part of the problem. I went there when it was cheap and I moved out when it got expensive and then moved somewhere else. And so I don't have a massive problem with that change. I think change is good. Yeah. Um, and I think... I'm just fascinated that you that you got to see it at, at such an important stage. I think yeah. probably one of the most important stages. Transition is always fabulous. Yeah. Just because it's like, you know, you're, the old world is changing, the new world's coming in. And often it makes it, you know, I moved out, I didn't like it. I didn't like it when it all got, when, when I opened the cost of coffee in the market and when it knocked down, when they got rid of the swimming pool and they got rid of all of that stuff, I didn't like it. And so you move. And then there's lots of other people who do like it and they like having a little Carluccio's in the market. I was like, fuck off. I like Market Caff, Phyllis and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And... I think it's just each to his own. You just find your way through. And I think you know it's going to happen. I mean, this is part of the conversation we had. You know it's coming. It's a question of do you bend or do you join in or do you challenge it and fuck off somewhere else and then make it happen somewhere else. And I think that's the thing, that if you're part of that thing, which you are, I think as a creative, as an artist, you are part of something which is to sort of make the most of that moment. And then you go there and you live it. And if it's great for three years, if it's great for 10 years, probably in the old days, Hackney Wick was great for 10 years. Mm. Whereas now I think you'll find an area that will be great for 40 minutes and then the developers will come in and fuck it. And But yeah, so it is. It is and I've, I feel at the minute um, for myself and a lot of people, it is a decision. It is a... Um, is it over or do we adapt and see what that brings and and that's a it's an interesting place it's human nature there's sort of something in our survival you know that's all we're taught to do is to survive yeah and 200 years ago you know the house i lived in on fournia street 11 and a half had stoves on every floor the building was built in 1720 so it was technically older than modern america there were huguenots living in there if it wasn't, you know, the silk weavers all living in there, like three families per floor. It's incredible, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the conditions that these people lived in. And then whether it was the, you know, the, the Jews in the, in, in, before in both wars, the, the, um, the um, Somalians, the Indians, the Bangladeshis, everybody has used that place like Ellis Island. Mm. It's incredible history and a great patina. When you go there, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. Then when you sit opposite that church that Hawksmoor built and you go, fuck me, there's something really dark about that. And he was a shit kicker. You know, he worked for Christopher Wren and 
Christopher Wren was all about, you know, nice rounded curves and, and pillars that were all carved and round, very Roman, very Roman. You know, and, and Hawksmoor's like, fuck all that. It's all <laughs> angles and all those mad conspiracy theories about the pentagram that, of all the churches that he was building. And so there was a kind of, there's a mad energy in that place. There is, for sure. Yeah. But it was the first time I've lived in London and felt at home because I don't feel Italian, English or Danish. Um, as a creative, you feel distant and disconnected with lots of people because a lot of people aren't. And when I went there, it was like I could blend in because everyone's like me. Everyone was on the move. Everyone was trying to do something. And so I didn't really have a problem with the the transition. And I love being in there that moment. I mean, and it must have been just as exciting in the, the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. And going back to Huguenots when they pitched up, being hounded out. It must have been fucking crazy then as well. And I love, also I love town areas that've got markets. You know, Spitalfields Market. I mean, it was a it was a fruit and veg market before I before I got there. When I arrived, it had all gone. But you still had Petticoat Lane, you had Brick Lane, you had the Waste. So there were all these little markets that were still kind of holding on. And a market, I think, for me, is like the heartbeat of a, of a community. And the minute they kill that. It's very difficult to, to maintain that kind of centrifugal kind of thing. Yeah, you don't get that sort of stuff back. It's interesting no. what, you, what you're saying as well, actually, about when you moved around the East End. Because, uh, yeah, exactly the same for me. It was the first time in London I felt like, God, this feels like home. Yeah. I feel home here. And I still yeah. do. When I walk down Brick Lane, I feel like it's my home. Yeah. Even though I live a bit further It's out quite now. weird, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, but, you, but you, when you look at, you know, where your background of Newcastle, Isle of Wight, I mean, like, from two extremes of the country mm. to suddenly find it. But there's something it's about... back in the middle. Isn't yeah, it? but it's maybe. But it's also like that thing of that there will be a wandering, you know, nomadic existence that you're, that it would genetically be programmed into you. The same with mine. You know, they came over in their teens and grew up, and I grew up in Fulham, Fulham and Chelsea, but Paddington, you know, around that area. So I've lived everywhere, but East was the only place, and t you know, Tower Hamlets and now Hackney, the only two places that I've genuinely felt, hold on, I feel part of something here. Mm. Um, and I think that's also a combination of you feeling happier about who you are and what you do and, and sort of settling a little bit. And, but it's very interesting, I love that. I love that kind of moment when you're experiencing something that's very visceral. Yeah. And about the sort of advertising, how do you feel about that? Someone who's um, sort of turned your back on advertising, seen some of the negative sides of it, but also seen, you know, from your own experience, someone who's benefited from it positively as well. Yeah. Um, how, do, how do you feel about that? Because it is, for me, a bit, of a, a bit of a clash of two worlds, and there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences. And um, it, feels like a, it feels like a strange phenomenon that I've got, I've got a lot of different feelings and opinions about it. But how do you feel about it? Well, I, yeah, I've got an opinion about it now, um, which I just don't like it. Um, I think it's when you the, when you get yourself out of jail, you never want to go back. Mm. Um, when I started, I was 18, 19. I didn't know shit from sugar. Um, I worked in some very creative agencies. I worked in some big multinational agencies. I didn't know anything that was going on. I, I, my, my focus was on trying to do a good piece of work that might get me a pay rise. You know, when I started work, I was getting four grand a year. Um, if I could do a good piece of work and the way they started it in those days is you would do shitty little black and white ads in the back of Travel Trade Gazette and if you did 20 of those well you'd get oh then well, we'll give you a little colour colour little small colour one in the back of Travel Trade Gazette and then you do 20 of those well you know your ambition was always to, I want to do a TV ad I want to do a poster 48 sheet poster was my dream mm. 
And, you know, I think you go through lots of experiences and you try stuff. Um, when I was 28, we got a chance to run an America, the London office of an American agency. The bloke I was working with at the time was like me, Indian guy. There were no Indian blokes in advertising. There were black people in advertising. There were no women in advertising. Well, the women in advertising were secretaries and bits of fluff. That's what they were. You know, they had a, they had a role to play. So it was a really old, you know, madmen. Mm. It was, you know, completely accurate. Yeah. And and so when I worked with Narish, we were very kind of we worked in some small startup agencies that I think triggered something about challenge. You know, this is the hierarchy. This is the way it's always been. Fuck all that. Go in there and smash it. Try something different. Give people options. Um, and so I love that thing of challenging. And so I set up I set up two agencies with him. We fell out in the end, which is inevitable, I think. But it was really good to be doing something where you're part of a gang and you can go, what about if we just go fuck off and we try something different? Mm-hmm. Don't call it... Well, you can't call it an ad agency. He was, he's, he's called Ramchandani. I'm Bonaguidi. It's never <laughs> going to work. You'd have to, have a, you'd have to have a wall that was 50 feet long just to get your name on it. But yeah, it was... Get t-shirts and and people, you can't that. employ people to say it when, they ring, when the phone rings. You're trying to get a receptionist to answer the phone. So it was, you know, So in a way, a lot of things that we did were forced upon us to sort of don't do it the way that it's always been done. Try and do something different. Yeah. And whether that's me being grown up, being a teenager, you know, teenager in the punk era or Brit art, whatever it might be, there were sort of certain things that formulate, you know, Channel 4 when I worked there. You, you feel, if, you're, if you've got that challenger gene in you and you get that chance, fucking don't pull the punch. Just keep, just push through. And so um, I loved all of that. I loved building those brands. In a way, the work was irrelevant because the work, you're always working for somebody else. You're working to to create something that's pretty much a colouring in exercise, ultimately. They know who they're talking to. The, the ability to put personality into the work is impossible, but the ability to create an ad agency or a company that's got personality, pretty fucking good. Yeah. And, um, you know, we when we did St. Luke's in the 90s, it was a co-op. It was born out of another agency that we were all working at that got sold and we were all going to lose our jobs. And so 30 people went, fuck you, we're not going to be... And we went and rented a rent-free place for two years in King's Cross that was an old toffee factory. It was mad. But it was like, no, we're not, we're not going to be part of your deal. Go fuck yourselves. And we took all of our clients and we took all the staff and everyone was shitting themselves. I was 28, but you just sort of go, well, what are we going to do? We can either all get be unemployed tomorrow or we can try something. Yeah. And and we did something and it was amazing. And it ended up being, a, a you know, en- ended up being agency of the year, whatever the fuck that means. But it ended up being something that was very interesting because it went, it was like, fuck you. And I love that. I love being part of anything where people go, fuck you. It's just brilliant fun. Yeah, for sure. And I think maybe, do you think that's got something to do with like your, your immigrant background as well? Totally, totally. And, uh, and oddly enough, you know. Grab an opportunity yeah, and take it. Yeah, and you've got, and, and you live in a constant state of transition, you know. And I think in the 80s when I was working at a couple of agencies, when the first recession hit, and I remember thinking, fucking hell, I've got a flat now in the Elephant and Castle that is now worth less than I paid for it. And uh, it was crazy times, you know, you sort of sit there and just think, wow, what happens next? But you go, I know it's not gonna last, so hold your breath and just keep fucking walking. Mm-hmm. Pull your pants up, stop crying, get on with it. And that was something my old man used to t- say when I was a kid, was just look useful, he was a restaurateur, you know, look useful, work hard, because at some stage somebody might ask you to leave. And if, you, if they don't want you to leave because you're giving them food or you entertain them in some way, 
great, you can stay. And so it was just this sort of thing of, I'm different. Kind of work out how you can kind of play the game a little bit. So you sort of go fuck you and create change and make it interesting, but then also make sure that you don't, when you say fuck you, don't make it too loud that they get pissed off. So it was this sort of, it was just brilliant fun. And I think that's the thing that I loved. But then after, after a long period, the agencies that I kept setting up, I, I sort of, they'd be really good for two, three years. And then you'd suddenly look around and go, oh God, it's just full of the same old. It was a bit like when I moved to Spitalfields, there were loads of people who said to me, what the fuck are you moving there for? It's a shithole. And I go, yeah, but I really like it. I like it because it's quiet. I like it because it's got a rawness and an energy. And then they would move there five years later when it had a Costa there and a nice little restaurants and you know, clothes shops that they could, you know, so when it was all done, I liked it when it was a bit- On the way up. On the way up, yeah, and scrappy. Yeah. And the same way with the agencies. I'd love building these agencies. I love those first three or four years where it's just like, what the fuck? Mm. And then the minute they became established or they became popular, all those arseholes who would never have gone in year one all go, oh, I want to go there because it looked good on my CV. And then suddenly I just remember sitting there going, oh, looking around going, oh, it's just exactly what I set up this place to challenge and now we've become it. So I'd leave and I'd go and do it again. And after a while you just go, I keep doing the same thing, keep getting building a place, having loads of fun, then getting frustrated, leave and go and do it again. And I just thought, I don't want to end up becoming that guy that his legacy, he set up 12 agencies, he doesn't work at any of them. Yeah. And it was more just like, create your own brand. That's your vibe and you're the client and you're the creator and you can do whatever you want. And we've come absolutely full circle now because uh, you started off by saying that you want to create work and then always look to the next thing. Yeah. But it's not like you're setting up something, finishing, setting up something new. When you're an artist, you're building a body of work. Yeah, there's no end point. And then doing something else and then yeah. doing something else. The and, but it's is... all under the same brand, which is you. It's yeah. all under the same yeah. theme, I suppose, in one way or another, because it can't not be, yeah. because there's lines drawn through it. It has to be, yeah, yeah. because in a, in a way, that's the discipline that advertising, or the, all those years in advertising, an industry will teach you, or grill you into, it has to have a red thread that goes through it. Yeah. So the work I'm doing, or that I did three years ago, compared to the work I'm gonna be doing in 10 years time, if I'm still around, will be, there should be something that you'd recognize. But also the, the ambition has to be, hang your work up in a room full of 300 other pieces of work how do people know it's yours yeah. and you know they do it with picasso they do it with warhol now i'm not by any stretch of the imagination anything like them stick as a classic example mm. banksy is a classic example you yeah. see they've got it yeah they've got something they're simple and it's really disciplined and it's theirs and it's theirs and you know if other people decide to copy it well then good for them but it's theirs and they've got there Just, and yeah, you'll know straight away yeah, yeah and you, know, you do stick, know you see yeah. people doing similar things yeah. tributes yeah but you know yeah it's amazing and it's and ben you know ben iron i mean you look at his stuff you just go fuck man it's simple don't don't overcomplicate it stick to what you know do it keep banging that same fucking beat and at some stage it will work i think that's a brilliant note to finish on <laughs> <laughs> Dave, it's been absolute. I'll tell you what, this has been an absolutely brilliant chat. I've Good. been so enlightened, and I think you're such an amazing guy. I think you're really inspirational, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come Pleasure. and do this. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for so asking. much. Nice one. Cool. Take care, mate. Cool. Thanks so much to Dave for joining us. All the details of his show and his Instagram are in the notes on this episode. And as always, you can tell us what you think in our Instagram post for this one. Subscribe for more episodes if you haven't already and leave us a five stars wherever you're listening. 
This was the Alternative London podcast with me, Gary Means, edited by Stu Ballingall. We'll see you next time.